Welcome. I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. As Republicans like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis introduce legislation that limit how race, slavery, and history are taught in schools, books like Dan Berger's are more important than ever. Stayed on Freedom, the long history of black power through one family's journey, is a new history of black liberation told through the stories of Dr. Zohara Simmons and Michael Simmons, two activists who fell in love while organizing tenants and workers in the South in the mid-1960s. Berger shows how, in their lives, black power drives a global struggle for freedom and justice. Dan Berger writes, quote, I hope that readers use each deepening revelation to ask new questions of themselves and each other about the world we live in and the one we would like to inhabit, end quote. Dan Berger is professor of comparative ethnic studies and associate dean for faculty development and scholarship in the School of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences at the University of Washington, Bothell. Dan Berger is a historian of activism, black power, and the carceral state in 20th century U.S. history. His research pursues a human accounting of how freedom and violence have shaped the United States. His book, Captive Nation, Black Prison Organizing in the Civil Rights Era, won the 2015 James Raleigh Prize. His new book is Stayed on Freedom, The Long History of Black Power Through One Family's Journey. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on your new book. Uh, Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. Great to have you. Dr. Zohara Simmons is Assistant Professor of Religion and Affiliated Faculty in the Women's Studies Department at the University of Florida. Dr. Simmons is a veteran of the Black Freedom, Peace, and Social Justice Movements of the 60s with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and its Project Director in Laurel, Mississippi for two years, beginning with the 1964 Mississippi Freedom Summer Project. Dr. Simmons went on to work for the National Council of Negro Women, and was on staff with the American Friends Service Committee for 23 years, working to end the Vietnam War, South African apartheid, and Israel's occupation of Palestine, among other issues. She's one of the subjects of the book we are discussing today, and we are so happy to have you, Zohara. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Well, it's great to have you. And Michael Simmons has been a U.S. and international human rights activist for 60 years, beginning as a youth organizer for SNCC in Philadelphia and later in the South. He was imprisoned for resisting the draft during the Vietnam War. Michael Simmons co-founded and ran the Rade Salon, an independent human rights learning and discussion program in Budapest, Hungary for 18 years. He worked with Roma people while he was there. In the 1970s, he served as the National Director for Housing and Employment for the American Friends Service Committee. And during much of the 90s, Michael Simmons' work focused on Cold War issues, including organizing exchanges between scholars and journalists from the Soviet Union and the U.S. His work has taken him to Africa, Asia, Europe, and the Middle East. And Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It's really great to have you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm so excited to have all of you. Uh, Dan, really, reading your book, it was just, I felt like I was going back in time and I just learning so much about Michael and Zohara and the movements they were involved with. Let's first talk about how this all came about. Let's talk first about how you met Zohara. You first met Zohara during your freshman history class. She was a guest speaker and a new instructor at the University of Florida, and she introduced you to the concept of black power. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, just there, there's a lot of serendipitous connections throughout the book and, and throughout history generally, but but the book begins with, with this uh, sort of wonderful uh, and very sort of unplanned connection where where my history professor invited her to speak. And I think learning, you know, I, I knew this was in 2000 and I knew about the Black Panthers that they existed. Um, but otherwise, you know, there wasn't really much in my sort of public school education about Black power. Uh, and I think hearing about it and hearing about the its origins in the civil rights movement and about Zahara's work in Mississippi um, was very inspiring, both to learn about her experience and her as a person, 
but also inspiring that I wanted to learn more about, <laughs> just about that sort of movement and movement history. And I was really struck at that time by how much people had not captured the history of Black power. Um, and some of what Zahara shared and, and talked about had not been recorded. Um, and I think Black power was positioned as kind of the enemy of the civil rights movement. And even though we know more about it now than we did then, there's still a lot left to learn. Right. And also you write that Zohara really told you all that Black power was a call for white people to confront racism at its source in institutions created and led by white people. And I have to say, Dan, when I read that part of your book, I thought this is exactly why people like DeSantis is going after you know, teachers and schools and introducing Republicans, introducing legislation that limit how race, slavery and history are taught in schools. I mean, to think Absolutely. that you as, as a white student were so affected by Zohara's talk. And, you know, here we are a couple decades later and you're yeah. out with this incredible book. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And, and, and you know, what's happening now is inseparable from the uprisings of 2020 as a sort of multiracial but Black-led phenomenon that was the largest protest in U.S. history. And, 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 and that is inseparable from the last you know, decade of, of Movement for Black Lives kind of organizing um, that has really inspired you know, multiracial, multigendered groups of Americans to take to the streets and, and to demand a better world. Zohara, you are assistant professor at the University of Florida, so you're right in the middle of all of this. I mean, to think that you inspired Dan to do all of this great work, basically saying black power is a call for white people to confront racism, and now DeSantis is, is going after that. I mean, I can't even imagine what it's like being in Florida right now, given all the incredible work that you've done over the years. Uh, indeed, uh, let me uh, just uh, let you know that I am a retired professor from the University of Florida. Uh, and boy, am I grateful that I am retired because that means that I can stand outside and and shout <laughs> down what uh, DeSantis is trying to do all across the state. But I still live here in Florida and am so uh, grateful that my colleagues and the students are organizing against uh, this white supremacist, racist uh, uh, legislation that's been promoted and is being promoted by the governor. And as I and Mike were very involved in getting black studies uh, in Philadelphia, Mike certainly much more than myself, but uh, the Black Studies program at Temple University came out of the struggles that Michael and others raised, uh, waged uh, and all of the Black Studies programs across the country uh, come as a result of the Black Power movement, just as women's studies comes out of the women's movement. So this is a pushback against all the things that we achieved, just as is the attack on voting rights. I mean, this is a backlash against all of the gains we've made over the last 50 years in the various movements of our time. Well, and also, Zohara, just given the influence that you had on Dan telling people that black power was a call for white people to confront racism. I mean, to think that today's children might not have access to that. I mean, it, we, we did a whole show on banned books. And of course, when you ban a book, the child or the student wants to read it even more. But can you just talk a little bit more about that? Because you had an influence on so many students. And what do we lose if if that goes away well certainly i mean it's it's critical for 20 years i taught african american studies and women's studies along with religion at the university of florida which is a majority white uh school 60,000 students and i can tell you in every class most of which were majority white classes 
all the white students said, why don't we know any of this history? Mm. And I said, because, you know, unfortunately, they don't want it taught. Uh, and they were just stunned. And it did impact them. Many of them became active in the movements on campus. And this is exactly why DeSantis and the DeSantises across the country are doing this. And just as Dan mentioned, I think they became very alarmed uh, during the elections. I mean, I'm sorry, during the uh, 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 campaigns across the country after George Floyd was killed. And many of those were uh, white young people, Asians, Latinos, in addition to Blacks. And of course, it was led initially by Black Lives Matter. But in many towns, these were almost all white marches against uh, police violence against Black and brown people. So I think that, you know, the DeSantis's of our country, the Republicans, they said, oh, my God, we cannot let this go on. We must prevent our students from learning this true history of our country. Mm. And so it is an effort to uh, go back in time to the 40s, I guess, uh, the 50s, when none of this was being taught in our schools. It is an attack on the movement. It's an attack on all of us who've worked for 50 plus years to tell the truth about the history of this country, the good and the bad of it. Right. Michael, we'll talk about how you met Dan in a minute, but what would you add? What are your thoughts about what we are facing today with all of this legislation these and these book bans? Well, I, I, I truly think it's a reaction to, um, um, as Zahar said, the uh, the dynamism of the of the movement that uh, that came into being as a result of George Floyd's um, assassination, as far as I'm concerned, that I think that that uh, people are looking at ways of uh, of curtailing that kind of activism. But the other thing too, you know, the the that having traveled a bit over um, in the terms of promoting the book. I mean, the the reality is that the U.S. is such a dynamically diverse country now that um, uh, I'm just amazed at the range of um, ethnicities that populate the country in a way uh, that they didn't when I was growing up in a uh, predominantly black and white world. And I think that that just uh, that 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 reality had, rather than embrace that reality as so something that, as far as I'm concerned, um, makes our society a, a much more uh, vibrant one, people see it as a threat and the need to, to revert back to a reality that, frankly, was never real. It was just a, a, a dominant presence in the culture. So that I just think that DeSantis and and his cohorts are fighting a losing battle. But, but, but nevertheless, we have to be able to uh, develop strategies and tactics to thwart them at every um, uh, 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 effort that they come up with. To your point about the George Floyd protests, because so much is happening in this country, it's I think it's so important to remember, and we did so many shows about this, that... George Floyd solidarity marches happened in all corners of this country in small town, white USA. And, and mm -hmm. as you say, Michael, the people who showed up at these rallies, I mean, we talked to a number of civil rights activists who said, this was amazing to see so many races, people from different backgrounds. It was, it was almost really a first in this country, at, at, when you look at the the, the sheer numbers of rallies that happened, and then the number of people attending them, yeah. In fact, you know that that um, during the the height of the um, uh, the protests around George Floyd, I was staying in the suburbs of Atlanta in a gated community, and even in that environment, which was upper middle class, clearly. Um, 
that I saw even individual young white people standing out in, in the streets um, with a sign um, uh, raising the issue of George Floyd. I are uh, moving around in the suburbs of Atlanta. And again, not Atlanta proper, but the suburbs, predominantly white suburbs. It was just activities in small town Georgia. And so that I am sure that this was observed and 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 treated as a threat by the uh, DeSantis's of the world. Mm. Well, Dan, let's talk about how you met Michael. It was in 2005, a year after you moved to Philadelphia. Michael was a featured speaker at an event at the American Friends Services Service Committee, uh, presenting a talk about black resistance to the Vietnam War. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, my my memory of the event is hazy, but certainly I knew of Michael from Zahara, who talked about her, you know, movement experience when when I was her student, and I had known that Michael had gone to prison for refusing induction into the military, and I think that example is really profound on its own right, but also it challenges this idea that the anti-war movement was uh, a white thing, right? That, that you know, civil rights was a quote-unquote black thing, and the anti-war movement was was the white left or something like that, um, and so it was really you know, again, just a sign of, of how um, dynamic their own lives were, but also how widespread and profound and cutting edge the Black Power movement was um, and, and Michael's resistance uh, and, and, and the larger sort of Black Power opposition to not only the U.S. war in Vietnam, but U.S. imperialism more broadly you know, really sort of set the terms for a lot of uh, sort of radical movements of the 1960s and 70s. So let's talk about how this book came to be. In 2016, on International Women's Day, you asked Zohara and Michael if you all could collaborate on a joint biography. Why did you decide to spend so many hours and so many years interviewing them? And why did you why did you want to take on this project? Yeah, you know, I, I asked them uh, on 2016, but I had had the idea for a long time before um, because knowing their story and knowing how much their involvement, you know, cut across a lot of silos that are usually applied to movement history. So, you know, we talk about the sort of Southern civil rights movement as something separate from Black power, which is, you know, seen as this urban Northern thing. Um we talk about, you know, the U.S. is separate from the rest of the world. Um, we talk about, you know, sort of secular activism is separate from faith-based activism. And here were two people who, you know, a, a divorced couple and lifelong friends who really blurred and, and busted those silos and challenged those silos. And so they had always been in my mind when I was reading other people's sort of accounts of the movement or and then started to do my own. Um, and so it just seemed like being able to sort of uh, tell a story of Black power, of the multitudes of Black power and how those multitudes were contained in one family would would really help us expand our sense of what and when and where the Black power movement was. And again, you spent hundreds of hours with them. And I just wonder, you know, reading about your childhoods, the incredible work that you did, uh, the racism that you endured and saw. I, I just wonder what the experience was like for you to revisit all of that, because the details are so rich. Zohara, what was that experience like for you to really revisit so many critical points of your past? Well, you know, um, that's such a great question, because really through these years of uh, being interviewed, sometimes uh, Mike and I would be uh, interviewed together by Dan, at other times separately. Uh, you know, it brought back memories. Uh, and because of Dan's meticulous uh, research in the archives and, and all the places that he found the information, uh, you know, he would often say, well, that was not the year you did that, Zohari. You, you did that. And I was like, really? Or he would come up with something from, say, for example, the SNCC minutes 
that I had said, you know, because the minutes were recorded and they're in archives. And I said, I said that? (laughs) Wow, that was amazing. So, you know, it's just been such a, the collaborative effort of working with a scholar like Dan Berger, who not only took our memories, and I mean, you know, we're talking 60 years of memory. Uh, And of course, in some places, they had to be hazy. And of course, doing it together with Michael, whose memory is better than mine, uh, that helped to, you know, fill out things that were no longer so clear in my head. And, you know, sometimes it brought tears, uh, you know, remembering uh, the things we went through, uh, thinking of the wonderful people we, in my case, lived with for almost two years in Mississippi, Mrs. Eberta Spinks and Carrie Clayton and so many of the others who've joined the ancestors and just recalling their bravery, their courage. Of course, it brought tears, you know, many tears. But this has been an amazing experience. And I'm really grateful because so many people keep telling me I need to write a memoir. And if I could stop being in the movement, uh, I maybe I could. <laughs> but I'm so <laughs> grateful that Dan, in many ways, has taken that burden off of me uh, because, you know, I'm still, uh, as we say in the SNCC uh, women's book, I still have my hands on the freedom plow and uh, I haven't had a lot of time to do a a writing of a memoir. So it was wonderful. Mm. What about you, Michael? What has this experience been like for you? Oh, it's been just um, an amazing experience. You know, that, that generally speaking, when you, when anyone lives their life, they just live their life. And so that you, you don't think about, what you're doing while you're doing it, and particularly in a historical context. Um, so to reach the point, the age that I am, and and to um, have the opportunity to look back and be reflective about my life and uh, the people that um, that I've been fortunate enough to meet and experience ideas with, fun uh, fun times with, um, has been just an amazing process and. Um, um, for those who who uh, are part of the struggle, I don't think there's anything more fulfilling than to be able to impact other people's lives um, as you live your own. And and Dan's work has really um, reminded me, I guess, that the exciting um, give and take that I've been able to be a part of during my um, um, struggles in the human rights movement. And before we go to break, Dan, what about you spending hundreds of hours with Zohara and Michael? And then the research took you to several archives around the country where you verified, contextualized, and then expanded on their stories. What a time to be working on this project. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, most of the archival visits were pre-COVID and the COVID context you know, changed everything for everybody everywhere. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the book was hardly the, the most significant change in, in a grand scheme of things. But, you know, I, I think we, we were all fortunate to be early adopters of Zoom before COVID sort of made everyone familiar with Zoom. Um, but the chance to, you know, I mean, I, I still remember like how excited I was to find the SNCC meeting minutes where Zahara and Michael met. Um, where they were both sort of uh, on the same side of a debate, sort of pushing SNCC to adopt a statement against uh, U.S. imperialism. And, you know, just to be able to, I mean, you know, this is largely a story of two people who, who, you know, were not the most visible, most well-known leaders of the movement. And so to to be able to sort of follow that archival paper paper trail of where the, the, quote unquote, everyday folks in the movement, you know, their many contributions to struggle, um, I think, you know, to me, it's a, it's really impressed upon me the importance of getting beyond, you know, the famous people doing the famous events at the famous times, mm-hmm. right? That it is these meetings that, that maybe someone was taking minutes of. Um, it is these sort of 
articles that that make mention to 20 unnamed people involved in a protest, right? Where that's where a lot of history happens. Um, and so to be able to sort of follow through the, the archival paper trail as well as to hear their stories, uh, I think really was, was quite a profound experience. Mm. Dan Berger is the author of the new book, Stayed on Freedom, The Long History of Black Power Through One Family's Journey. It's a new history of black liberation told through the story of today's guests, Dr. Zohara Simmons and Michael Simmons. They fell in love while organizing tenants and workers in the South in the mid-60s. Dan, Zohara, and Michael have a couple of events coming up if you live in the Bay Area. They will be at the Green Arcade in San Francisco on next Tuesday at 6.30. And then they will also be at the American Culture Center and the Multicultural Community Center at UC Berkeley next Wednesday, March 8th at 3 p.m. And we will add links at yourcallradio.org. This is Your Call. We'll be back after this. This is Your Call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Today, we are discussing Dan Berger's new book, Stayed on Freedom, The Long History of Black Power Through One Family's Journey. Dan Berger is Professor of Comparative Ethnic Studies and Associate Dean for Faculty Development and Scholarship in the School of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences at the University of Washington, Bothell. Dr. Zohara Simmons is a retired assistant professor at the University of Florida, and Michael Simmons has been a U.S. and international human rights activist for 60 years. If you have any questions or comments for our guests, there's just so much. They've done so much work in their past and their present. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. The toll-free number is 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at kalw.org. You know, I have to say, I wish we had two hours because there's so much to discuss. And I hope that you all will consider coming back. So what we don't get to, we can talk about in another show. I think I could probably spend an hour just on your younger years. You, you know, Zohara... Gosh, I remember so many people talking about living in a, a post-racial society after President Obama was in the White House. And to think that you and Michael have just seen so much, um, if, if you don't mind, if we can just talk a little bit about your childhood, Zohara, you were born on August 9th, 1944. Uh, born into a segregated world, the library, the zoo, the pool, the lunch counter. This was in Memphis. All of Memphis's public institutions and most private ones either excluded black use altogether or granted access just once a week, month, or a year. And it's just, our listeners know this, but I think it's just so important to, to talk about this. You're still here and you had to endure this as a child. Yes, uh, and 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 let's be clear. Uh, from my years of teaching, I found out that these students did not know this. Hmm. I mean, it was like I was talking about something on the moon. They couldn't believe it, and you know, I was glad that they couldn't believe it because that meant we had changed it. But yes, uh, I was raised by my grandmother. And uh, she was raised by her grandmother, who had been an enslaved person. So I had learned from my grandmother, Rhoda Douglas, a lot about slavery from as early as I can remember. And then, as you have noted, uh, this was apartheid. I mean, you know, that's the word, even though, you know, we called it the Jim Crow system, uh, it was apartheid and black people were treated as pariahs. And uh, like you've noted, uh, we could not even use the public library. We could not go to the art museum. Uh, we had one day a week that we could go to the Memphis Zoo. And once a year, we could go to the fairgrounds. I mean, uh, it, it was, uh, you know, everything that touched my life was black and it was positive. So I don't want to suggest that growing up as a black child in Memphis was a terrible experience, 
because it wasn't. And there, the community uh, was uh, unified in many ways based on the fact that we lived in an apartheid system. Uh, my all-Black school uh, from first through 12th, I went to the same school and I never had a new book. Every book that I had had been used by the white children. And we used to make a joke of it. Uh, on the first day of class, we'd open the books and we'd say, who are you today? And I'd say, oh, I'm Alice Jones <laughs> uh, or whoever's name was in the book. And often there might be three or four names uh, because the book, of course, had passed around in the white schools. Uh, so, you know, it was totally separate and totally unequal. Wow. And uh that's how I grew up. And the one thing that was different than some other parts of the South was that in Memphis, African-Americans could register and they could vote. So my grandmother had registered as soon as women got the right to uh, register and she voted in every election. And she was serious about it. She and my granddad and not only that, she went from door to door um, asking her neighbors to make sure they were registered, that their registrations were up to date, and telling them who she was going to vote for, et cetera. Now, I didn't think about how that influenced me until much later, uh, when I was knocking on doors in Mississippi, uh, trying to encourage people to register to vote. So uh, yes, it, it and and lastly, but certainly uh, not least, uh, I was taught, you know, to stay in my place. Um, we knew that if you got out of your place, uh, there would be dire consequences. And up until the eleventh grade, I certainly had obeyed them. But in the eleventh grade, at the end of the eleventh grade, when I went looking for jobs. In the white part of town, something I had never done, never been in that part of town by myself, but had cut out these advertisements for jobs, for typists. I learned typing, you know, and these things. And of course, when I went in with my little cutout saying, I'm up here to apply for this job, they would look at me like I had two heads and they were like, are you kidding? That, that, these are not for, you know, they might have said the N-word, but if they were somewhat sensible, they said, this is not for a Negro. What are you doing in here? Hmm. Anyway, that was like the first time that I really, really understood what it meant to be a Black person in Memphis. And I, my first time being angry about the system and I got on the 31 Crosstown bus. A big storm came up. I got caught in the storm. I was soaking wet. And I decided, well, I'm going home because I'd been turned away uh, from three or four places where I had applied. And I got on the bus. And for the first time in my life, I sat on the front seat. And the, the driver looked at me and said, girl, what's wrong with you? Get on in the back where you belong. And I just glared at him. I was so mad. And I was like, you're going to have to throw me off this bus. And that was my first time ever going against the system. When I went home and told my grandmother what I had done, she was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You could have been killed. Oh, God. What's wrong with you? Have you lost your mind? Etc. I didn't do that again until I went off to school and got involved with the student movement. So that's sort of my story of growing up in a nutshell. Well, this, that was incredible. And that happened on the bus in 1960. And to read that no white passengers had actually boarded yet, but the black passengers pleaded and prayed for you. Oh, God, please, you're going to get yourself killed. Exactly, right. what your gram exactly what your grandma said. Exactly. And they were begging me, please get up and come on back here. Please, you know, because they knew, you know, they people knew what could happen and that they couldn't do a thing about it. 
And lastly, it's so important, you know, the rule was that a white person could never sit behind a black person. So when the white people got on the bus, they were standing up because I'm in the front seat and they can't sit behind me. So they're telling the bus driver, make her get up. Mm. (laughs) And they were soaking wet, dripping, and they were so mad. And, you know, I have no idea why they didn't beat me up, throw me off. The bus driver could have done it. Nothing would have been done to any of them if they had attacked me, nor did he call the police. He kept grumbling, but he did nothing. So that saved my hide that day. (laughs) <laughs> Amazing. Zohara, when you said that when you share your when you shared your stories when you were still a professor in Florida, that the students were shocked. So these were college students that were shocked to yes. learn about what you yes. endured in Memphis. And they would have endured in Florida if, if they had been living in the 60s. But it, they didn't know. It was so amazing. Not only did the white kids not know the black kids said oh i think my grandmother might have said something about that i mean it was unreal to them wow so that made it i mean i was glad it was unreal but i was sad that they didn't know this history Hmm. right and that's why this is all so important dan in your role as a professor today what can you tell us about what students know and don't know about all of the incredible work that Zohara and Michael did, and then also what what they had to grow up with. Yeah, I mean, you know, the places are are different, certainly by region, by campus. But but my, I have a lot of similar experiences as as Zohara of students saying, "How come I never learned about this? Like, I didn't know who you know. People know who about King and Malcolm. I mean, often in very sort of." caricatured ways but they know about them um but beyond that i have a lot of students who who are very sort of you know don't know about snick um you know don't know fanny lou hamer certainly don't know eberta spinks right or some of the sort of local people's names that zahara is talking about um and early in the pandemic uh i had i invited mike on zahara to to speak to my class when we were all virtual and you know students were blown away I had a an older African-American student who brought her two kids you know who were like what once she saw sort of our guests for the day and our program for the day she like got her kids out of you know virtual school in the next room and brought them to like hear their talk and um and said you know this after Michael Zahar had left said like this is so important and you know, we don't, like, we need to know our history and you know, my kids aren't getting at school. Like, I'm so glad they could be here today. Mm-hmm. So, you know, e- even where we don't have the the direct assault and bans uh, that we're seeing in Florida, you know, we, our education system still has a long way to go in terms of actually telling people about the history of this country and, right. and the history of those who actually changed it. Michael, I think I heard you there. Did you want to jump in? Well, no, it, 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 I mean, listening to Zahar, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia and um, uh, the, the racism um, was not as violent or the, the impact of it all, although clearly there, there were restricted areas, uh, unofficial uh, restricted areas for us where you just knew not to go, but you knew not to go because you was potentially subject to random violence. Um directed at you, not so much by the police, but including the police. Um, but the, uh, the, the thing that, that, um, Zahar's, uh, comments remind me of is that, that people need to know there was no level of human existence or human interaction that was not impacted by apartheid in the South from, from just looking at someone in the eyes to what you called yourself a five year old child called a um a eighty year old man by his first name while the man called the child uh called or Mr. Joe or whatever. So I mean just things there was just daily things to demean you as a person, your dignity. And I just think that it's important to uh you know today people 
talk about micro uh, progressions that they experience at their employment or in uh, in society at large. But I mean, but but this was even more profound than, than so-called microaggressions because every single failure to obey these mores could lead to your death. I mean, and when, I mean, just think about how easily Zahar could have been killed, but just sitting on a bus because mm. she's wet and tired. So I just think that people need to be aware of how uh, uh, encompassing, all encompassing this system was. Right. And it was not not that long ago. Uh, Michael really. Simmons has been a U.S. and international human rights activist for 60 years. Dr. Zohara Simmons is a retired assistant professor at the University of Florida. Dan Berger is a professor at the University of Washington, Bothell, and author of the brand new book, Stayed on Freedom, The Long History of Black Power Through One Family's Journey. And they will all be in conversation next Tuesday, March 7th, 6.30 p.m., they will be at the Green Arcade Bookstore in San Francisco, if you're in the area. And then next Wednesday, March 8th, they will be at the American Culture Center and the Multicultural Community Center at UC Berkeley. That's at 3 p.m. And we will put links at yourcallradio.org. Um, let's hear a caller who's been waiting patiently. Let's go to Cornelius in San Francisco. Hi, Cornelius. Thank you for holding. Hi, Rose. Thanks for, for taking my call and for this great program. I'm thrilled to hear both Michael and Zahara and to greet them and thank them because we worked together in Philadelphia and I was inspired and taught by them um, in the movement. So that's, that's all I got to say. I don't want to take too much from what they got to say. And I look forward to reading the book, too. Well, it's a great book. Thank you so much for calling in, Cornelius. And again, I hope we can have them all back so we can continue the discussion because we're really barely scratching the surface. Um, so I just want to add one more thing, Zohara, before we talk about a little bit more about Michael's past. Just learning about your grandmother and your great-grandmother, again, not that long ago. So you were raised by your grandmother who had been raised by her grandmother, who was an enslaved woman. I'm, yes. Again, it's, it's not, not that long ago. I know. And, and, you know, another thing about my grandma Lucy, as I was taught to call her, and of course she had long been passed away, but she was blonde and blue-eyed because her father was the slave owner. Mm. So, you know, that's a whole nother wrinkle uh, to the horrible uh, things that happened to uh, Black women during the enslavement period. You know, they were often uh, raped uh, and children came from those uh, rapes and those children were still enslaved. Mm -hmm. And uh, in her case, Grandma Lucy, when she was 13 was given as a gift to her all-white sister as a wedding gift from their father. And they look so much alike. And her sister hated her because of this and subjected her to all kinds of demeaning stuff until, you know, my grandmother was emancipated during, uh, you know, the emancipation Wow. The Civil War. Mm. Incredible, incredible story. Michael, let's talk a little bit about your background. Your parents taught you the power of movement through their separate journeys out of the South. Your father, John William Simmons, and mother, Rebecca White, were two of almost 400,000 Black people who left the South in the 1930s. Uh, the train lines, as we read in the book, luckily would send them both to North Central Philadelphia, where almost 100,000 black people lived by 1940. But they found a city that was hardened by segregation and battered by the Great Depression. Um, tell us a little bit about what you learned about <clears throat> your parents' journey and what they found. Well, I, I think it's a couple of things uh, that I'd like to highlight, at least. Uh, my mother born in 1921, 
um, I left home at 12 years old, which meant 19, what, 33, mm-hmm. in the height of the Depression. But because, because they were so poor that she went to work, and her work was in the in um, domestication, the cleaning of white people's uh, homes and taking care of their children so that she could spend, uh, send literally a few dollars back to help her mother uh, raise her siblings um, so that uh, her poverty, the poverty that she experienced was intense in a time when many, many folks were experiencing poverty. My father was not quite as God destitute, but the, but um, the, the impact of my father on, on me in terms, it was actually that um, he had been married before. So I had two older brothers uh, who were very early members of the uh, nation of Islam. And uh, they were recruited by Malcolm X. He became a part of my reality at a very early age. Uh, and um, so that um, I would hear these arguments back and forth about Islam and um, um, and Christianity. And while it was too complex for me to understand the the enthusiasm in which the arguments took place, let me know that it was something that I should be trying to sort out, which I did over a period of time. But 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 by and large, my uh, my upbringing, while clearly um, uh, um, organized by the impact of segregation, was nowhere near as, as um, violent and violent as the things that Zahar experienced in Memphis. Well, what was so interesting about your upbringing, Michael, is that your wheels started turning even before you turned eight. We learned that on the radio, you heard that the government executed suspected communist spies, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Two years later, you saw the bloated corpse of Emmett Till in Jet Magazine. And then you stumbled upon a Marxist bookstore opened by a communist named Bill Crawford. And then, as you said, um, Malcolm X came to your home as a guest of your older brothers in the spring of 1954. So these were just major, major events. And as a young person they really had an impact on you. Yes. Um, eventually I began to put things together. I mean, these were this kind of um, realities in my environment that I didn't, I didn't really have a place for. I guess the thing that if I had to pinpoint the thing that uh, shaped me the most, it was the assassination of Emmett Till mm-hmm. uh, because um, I, like him, would go south to visit relatives in the summertime, and my cousins would caution me about my interaction with white people. I took the caution to be silly. I was I was uh, very arrogant about it, like you know, not um, expressing any fear, having no sense of the fear um, that I should have had. And Emmett Till just shocked me into a whole new reality that um, uh, that helped to shape my life. And then two years later, I'm, I'm looking at Little Rock, Arkansas, where it took federal troops to, to get nine people, nine children into uh, Central High School in Little Rock. And those two events really uh, began to uh, form, formulate a prism in which I began to look at the realities of race as, as they uh, uh, occurred around me. Hmm. Amazing. I mean, and then we learned that you refused to participate in the daily recitation of the Lord's Prayer and the Pledge of Allegiance at school, and you were suspended. And then you were imprisoned for resisting the draft during the Vietnam War. Um, Like I said, we're really only scratching the surface, and unfortunately, we're out of time. So I would love to have the three of you back because there's so much we didn't get to. Um, And Dan, just quick final thoughts from you. We've got about a minute left. What are you hoping um, people walk away with after reading this book, especially at a time when the information that Zohara and Michael are sharing and that you're presenting in this book is really under attack? Yeah, well, you know, as you said, none of this is that long ago, right? Zohara sort of bears living witness to, to the 
traumas and horrors of slavery, but also, you know, she took me on a tour of Memphis and said, here's where the white part of the neighborhood started, right? And, 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 and Michael did a sort of similar thing in Philadelphia. And so our histories of segregation and, and even enslavement uh, you know, are still very much with us, but so are our histories of resistance and struggle. And I think that sense of endurance and of everyday people sort of showing up to make a difference for themselves and their neighbors and communities, I think is the enduring message of the book. I love what you say in the book. I hope that readers use each deepening revelation to ask new questions of themselves and each other about the world we live in and the one we would like to inhabit. Dan Berger is the author of the new book, Stayed on Freedom, the long history of black power through one family's journey. It's a new history of black liberation told through the story of Dr. Zohara Simmons, a retired professor at the University of Florida, and Michael Simmons. Michael has been a U.S. and international human rights activist for 60 years. And again, Dan, Zohara, and Michael will be at two events if you're in the Bay Area next Tuesday in San Francisco and next Wednesday at UC Berkeley. And we will put links on our website for more information. Dan, Zohara, and Michael, thank you so much for joining us. And and we would really love to have you back to continue this conversation. Thank you. Thanks. I think we'd all love that. Yeah. Yes, we'd love that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You can find more information about the book and Zohara and Michael's incredible work at yourcallradio.org. Thanks to BSAL for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. And we hope you can join us tomorrow. We are going to talk about what it means now that California's COVID state of emergency is ending. This is Your Call. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. 